welcome to another episode of Air Power and International Security. I've been looking forward to bringing you this episode for ages now, it seems like. Today we have on the show Professor Alan Alport of Syracuse University, New York. Alan is just the most fantastic speaker and has recently written one of the best books you can buy on the Second World War called Britain at Bay. So I'm really delighted we could get such a distinguished guest on today's show. Now there's a little bit of context to this episode. In 2021, I think it was, a journalist called Malcolm Gladwell wrote a book about US strategic bombing and the ideas that underpinned it during the Second World War. That book, called The Bomber Mafia, hasn't been particularly well received by historians, to put it politely, although I'm sure it's been a tremendous commercial success. Anyway, I was scrolling through Twitter one day, as you do, and came across Alan's terrific Twitter thread pointing out many of its errors and misunderstandings. So I thought it would be an excellent idea to invite Alan onto the show to give us a better understanding of US ideas regarding precision bombing and how well it was implemented by the US Army Air Force during the Second World War and to what effect. So here is Alan talking about the bomber mafia and their impact on the bomber offensives over Germany and Japan. Enjoy! Hello, Alan, and thank you for joining us today in order to discuss the bomber mafia. I think the first question to start with really is, why were they named the bomber mafia? What was it in particular that led them to be given this name either at the time or by subsequent historians? Right, so the the bomber mafia is a name which, uh, which actually... Uh, Malcolm Gladwell himself came up with. This isn't a name that they used uh, themselves, but uh, what he's describing is the uh, the Army Air Corps Tactical School in Maxwell Field in Alabama. And this was a, uh, a little bit like uh, the Air Force Academy, of course, would later become uh, after the creation of the independent US Air Force. This was a place where um, officers of the US Army Air Corps between the two world wars worked on the theory of strategic bombing how, how it would be used in a future war uh, what the kind of target systems ought to be what would be the most efficacious use of air power in a, in a future war and as we'll perhaps talk about you know in a moment some of some of the ideas that were developed by this bomber mafia in the 30s came to be used in practice in the strategic bombing campaigns in Europe and in the Pacific, and, and others did not. Yes, I'm sure we will. But before that, could you give us a, an overview of how the Pacific campaign developed between 1941 and 1945? And possibly, just as importantly, what challenges did the US Army Air Force face when operating in the Pacific? Ever since, uh, you know, since, since Pearl Harbor in December 1941, the Americans had been, uh, had hoped to launch strategic bombing raids against mainland Japan. But the sheer distances that were involved in the Pacific made that uh, a very formidable challenge. There was, of course, there was the famous Doolittle raid in early 1942, which was launched from carriers, but this was a kind of one-off exceptional event which in any case had much more sort of you know propaganda value than it had any any practical effect part of uh the development of b-29 super fortress which was the probably the most advanced mass-produced aircraft in world war ii 
was to try and tackle this problem, a uh, range of over 3,000 miles, um, in order to be able to make it feasible to launch strategic bombing raids in the, the Pacific. So the initial raids by B-29s take place um, in 1944, and they start off in mainland China. But these are not very successful. And this, this, is, this is abandoned as a strategy, partly because of the enormous logistical different uh, problems in getting enough fuel and supplies to bases in China across the, across the Himalayas. But in August 1944, the Americans captured the Marianas Islands in the Central Pacific, particularly the islands of Saipan and Tinian. And these are just close enough to mainland Japan to make it feasible to place air bases there to launch B-29 attacks against Japan's cities. So a uh, huge construction uh, project takes place there over the, uh, the autumn and the winter of 1944. And then the first raids by what's known as 21st Bomber Command start in November 1944 on Japan's cities. And these are commanded initially by Brigadier General Hayward Hansel, who is one of Malcolm Gladwell's key uh, figures in this, in this bomber mafia story. So these initial raids against Japan are high altitude daylight formation raids. Um, they're precision attacks targeting, in particular, the Japanese aircraft industry. But they're not very successful for a number of reasons. Uh, the weather having a huge amount to do uh, with it. It's very hard to see and hit these precise targets with the cloudy conditions uh, that often exist over Japan. There are all kinds of weather fronts, as well as the high altitude jet stream, which breaks up the formations of the B-29s as they're, as they're coming over Japan. Um, and so in January 1945, Hansel is replaced by another figure in the US Army Air Force, uh, Major General Curtis LeMay. And this coincides in early 1945, though for reasons, complicated reasons, which maybe we'll come back to. Um, this coincides with a switch in tactics. So instead of continuing to launch high altitude precision raids, the B-29s start flying in nighttime, low altitude raids, not using high explosives anymore, but incendiary bombs. And these uh, incendiary attacks are not launched against any particular industrial target, but large areas of urban Japan, which are made of paper and wood and so are particularly flammable and particularly susceptible to incendiary attacks. Now, the first of the major raid under LeMay takes place on the night of 9th and 10th March 1945, and this is against Tokyo, Japan's capital. It is notorious as the most destructive single air raid in human history. And that includes the atomic bomb attacks that took place later on in the year. Uh, much of Eastern Tokyo is destroyed in this raid and something in the region of 100,000 Japanese civilians are killed and about 1 million made homeless. The US Army Air Force loses just 14 aircraft out of the 350 that had been sorted for the attack. So you can see that, that the extent to which it regarded this as being a spectacular success. And then the firebombing of Japan continues until the end of the war. It's kind of hard to figure out exactly what the total casualties were. There are a number of different ways of calculating it, but the estimates vary from somewhere between 300,000 to 900,000 Japanese civilians who die in the firebombings. Most of the urban areas in Japan are laid waste. And after the war, LeMay, building upon the, um, the success of these raids, goes on to help found the US Air Force, Independent Air Force in 1947. 
and he becomes commander of the post-war strategic air command that has the the, the american atomic deterrent so that gives you a little bit of a that, that this is the this is the story that that gladwell is, is telling now he tells it primarily as a clash of individuals and a clash of ideals what he is interested in is this idea of particularly uh, eccentric geniuses and obsessives. This is the way that he, he tends to write so much of his, uh, of his literature. Um, and he talks about this switch that takes place from precision, uh, high altitude, daylight attacks to nighttime firebombs. He frames it as a, as a difference in personality and values between Hansel and LeMay. So he argues that Hansel was an idealist and he held to a uniquely American theory of air power as being a humanitarian weapon, which had been developed, this theory, he argues, had been developed at the, at the Army Air Corps Tactical School in, in Maxwell Field in the 1930s. So his argument is that the bomber mafia theory of the 30s was that air attacks wouldn't aim for whole cities that would kill civilians indiscriminately, but for precise industrial or military sites that would cripple an enemy country and force it to sue for peace with as few casualties as possible. The idea is, is that the, the net effect would be to lower the amount of human suffering. Gladwell says, says at one point, the genius of the bomber mafia was to say, we don't have to slaughter the innocent, burn them beyond recognition in pursuit of our military goals, we can do better. And he argues in his book that this is a uniquely American ethical theory and says that the, the US practiced this ethical daylight precision bombing in Europe too, by the 8th and the 15th Air Forces, in contrast to, for example, the RAF and uh, Arthur Bomber Harris, who was the head of RAF Bomber Command from 1942 onwards. Gladwell dismisses Harris at one point as a quote-unquote psychopath who reveled in mass deaths through area bombing attacks. So Gladwell talks about Hansel, in contrast, as a true believer in this bomber mafia creed, to quote Gladwell. He provides us with a model of what it meant to be moral in our modern world. So Hansel is kind of the angel in this story. And then we have a devil, Curtis LeMay. He is a man prepared, according to Gladwell, to do whatever it takes to make bombing work, even if it violates this humanitarian theory that had been dreamt up in Maxwell Field. So once LeMay takes over in the Pacific, uh, he decides precision bombing isn't working. We need to switch to nighttime fire, firestorm attacks. And the result, of course, is the, is, the, is the bombing of Tokyo and the big cities. Now, Gladwell argues that this new policy was hugely successful in bringing Japan to the brink of surrender, but morally abhorrent. LeMay's leadership, he says, worked but at a huge moral cost. And he calls the story, again, quote, a case study in how dreams go awry. So that's, that's, that, that's the sort of sketch out, um, you know, what, what Gladwell is arguing. What is it that you think that Gladwell has misinterpreted or perhaps misrepresented in his book, The Bomber Mafia? And what issues have has yourself and other historians found with the conclusions that he reaches from his interpretation of the available evidence? I mean, for one thing, this is a way of talking about air power, which defines it in uniquely American terms. 
uh, and it ignores the transnational history uh, of air power, which I think complicates things considerably, particularly, for example, if we think about uh, British theory and practice in the 30s and 40s as well. Um, it's all about individuals. It's all about individual personalities and great men uh, and ignores some of the structural forces that were going on uh, and institutional forces that made policy just as much as, as individual decision making. I also think, um, and hopefully we can have some time at the end to talk about this, it arguably very much overstates the effect of the Firestorm raids. There's, there, is, there is an argument to say they're actually, they were actually much, though spectacular, they're actually much less effective at uh, bringing Japan to surrender than uh, somebody like LeMay would have argued. So let's talk about Europe. This is, this is kind of a minor theme um, in the book, but we should probably get it out of the way first. The RAF uh, had also, of course, begun World War II with a theory of daylight precision bombing. This wasn't something that was unique to the bomber mafia. It wasn't something that was unique to uh, Americans or the Maxwell Field. Now they abandoned this between the end of 1939 and the end of 1941, uh, not because Arthur Harris was a psychopath or because of some kind of unique wickedness or because they didn't believe in it, but because it, it didn't work. Uh, in practice, it was, it was a failure, a dangerous failure. There were unsustainable casualties and, and, and very little effect. The, the RAF had concluded, I think, at this point, that you know, if you were going to get make precision bombing work, you needed numbers, far more aircraft than they have, uh, far better aircraft than they already had. You needed better training. You needed better technology, particularly navigational and targeting aids. And once these did become available, certainly by late 1933, uh, late, late 1944 or so, the RAF did return to some extent, to precision bombing. Harris was always a true believer in area bombing. He was, he was he, he, to be fair, he was someone who genuinely thought that this was the, the most efficacious way of using air power. But he wasn't the only person who mattered in the story. So his boss, the chief of the air staff at the time, Sir Charles Portal, uh, he is much more interested in precision bombing, particularly against oil and transportation targets, uh, and he doesn't allow Harris to get to, to make on his own way. Gladwell has nothing about this. Gladwell doesn't discuss any of this at all. And of course, yes, the 8th Air Force and the 15th Air Force were attempting precision bombing in, uh, in Europe, um, but they didn't stick to it. They didn't stick to it in any, in any practical way. Um, so as the war goes on, they increasingly start to use air-to-ground radar-assisted bombing. You know, what they're discovering is, is that they're flying over targets in Germany, and they can't see them. So for all of the value of the Norton bomb site, it's, it's useless because you've got no visual um, sighting of the target. So they use air-to-ground radar instead. Uh, now, in theory, yes, these are precision attacks using radar-assisted attacks. In practice, particularly if you're on the ground, doesn't seem very different to anything that the RAF are doing because the bombs are still falling all over the place. So the, the line between precision and area attack, I think, becomes much more blurred in Europe as the war goes, as the war goes on. So what's motivating the Air Corps Tactical School in terms of the development of their ideas around strategic bombing, around precision bombing? And how do their ideas differ from those of other air power theorists at the time, such as Julio Douay and the chief of the air staff at the Royal Air Force, 
uh, Sir Hugh Trenchard? Well, again, the the people at the Army Air Corps Tactical School are, of course, reading. They're reading Douay. They're reading Trenchard. So they they are aware of the fact that there is a transnational element to all of this. Um, I think I think the, the the way in which Gladwell tends to misunderstand what's going on at Maxwell Field is, for one thing, he he frames the the bomber mafia's theories as all about humanitarianism. Uh, he frames them as being primarily uh, ethical approaches to bombing. Now, that's not what the theory of precision bombing was about, either in the United States or, or, or in Britain. It was about efficacy, ultimately. The reason why the, th- the, the bomber mafia believed in precision bombing wasn't primarily because they thought it was a kinder, gentler way of fighting. They just thought it was more effective. They just thought that that was that was the, the the way in which you could get the most bang for your buck, literally, uh, in terms of, uh, of bombing. And it's also worth mentioning that precision bombing doesn't necessarily mean a kinder or gentler uh, effect on the civilian population. Uh, they might not be burned alive uh, in a firestorm attack, but they might suffer in ways which are just as unpleasant in lots of ways. So, I mean, one example of this this is this is a uh, a war game scenario that was developed at Maxwell Field in the 30s. So uh, it was a theoretical war that might take place between Canada and the United States. They wanted to think about you know, the, the, uh, how you might use air power in a situation like that. One argument was, well, how would you disable New York City if you were, say, the Canadians and had air bases in Toronto? How might you uh, bring you know, uh, New York City to its to its knees, and so they theorized that what you could do is is that you could launch precision attacks against all the bridges and aqueducts that brought fresh water into the city, basically cut off all of the potable water supply to uh, people within the New York City metropolitan area, and threaten that they all die of thirst, basically before uh, un- unless the United States surrenders. Now that was precision bombing. Uh, that was not area bomb. Uh, was it more humanitarian than the idea of setting fire to New York City? Well, I mean, that's a debatable point, isn't it? But certainly they, w- they were quite willing to accept a good deal of human suffering if it meant that the enemy would be defeated. The other thing, of course, to, b- to bear in mind is that even in the 20s and the 30s, precision bombing wasn't the only thing that Maxwell Field considered. There were other approaches that they understood. They had been influenced by... Uh, Douay, who had talked about uh, terror bombing and terrorizing enemy populations into surrender. They had read the work of someone like Trenchard, who talked much about morale bombing and, and lowering enemy morale. And also Billy Mitchell. And Billy Mitchell is a, is a figure who, a very important figure in the development of American air power, who Gladwell doesn't really talk about very much. He had been someone who had long pressed for uh, a very aggressive use and development of an American air power arm. Now, as early as the 1920s, uh, because Mitchell was very much banging the drum about the possibility of a war against Japan, he had argued that incendiary area attacks could be made against Japan's cities, that he was aware, as other people were, of the fact that they were particularly vulnerable to fire because of their the physical construction. And so he's, ar- he's arguing long before Pearl Harbor that uh, the US Army Air Force ought to conduct firebomb raids against uh, Japan. So this, is, this has nothing to do with, uh, with Curtis LeMay 
So it sounds like firebombing was something the US was always exploring. How does the switch from precision attacks to area bombing come about during the war in the Pacific? So long before LeMay arrived in the, the Marianas Islands in January 1945, the US Army Air Force had already been thinking a lot about incendiary attacks on Japan. And in fact, they'd conducted extensive planning and preparation for it. So, for instance, there is a report that's published in October 1943, um, uh, which argues that um, there are 20 different Japanese cities uh, with uh, particularly flammable neighborhoods. And it recommends that. American aircraft ought to target Japanese workers in order to contain industrial output and lower morale. And the Americans actually built a mock Japanese village in Utah uh, in order to test different kinds of weapons. And in summer 1943, they launched a series of napalm cluster bomb attack on this village in order to see what, what happens. And of course, it's, it's completely raised to the ground. And then there's something called the Committee of Operations and Analysts, the COA. Uh, and this is a group of uh, civilian statisticians and people drawn from various branches of, of US industry, as well as military men. And their job is to kind of conduct operational research and to analyze target selection, um, both for the, uh, the war in Europe and the war in the Pacific. Now, they publish a report in 1944. Uh, called Economic Effects of Successful Area Attacks of Six Japanese Cities. And they say that you know, when weather conditions permit and when there are enough B-29s in order to be able to do this properly, the American Air Force should drop large numbers of incendiary bombs on Tokyo, Osaka, Nagoya, Yokohama, Kawasaki, and Kobe. Now, what's really important here is that they don't want firebomb attacks to begin too soon. They want to avoid doing this in a piecemeal kind of way, because their argument is, is that if they start, if they start firebomb attacks uh, when they only have a very small number of B-29s that are available, then the Japanese will respond very quickly. They will learn to, be, to put fire breaks within their cities. They will be able to do effective civil defense measures in order to be able to, to, uh, to minimize the damage that's caused. So they argue that the Army Air Force should hold this card in their hands until they're ready to play it. And they conclude, um, quoting here from the, the report, a general attack on Japanese industrial areas should be initiated in March 1945, which, as it turns out, is exactly when it, when it begins. So a year before, they were already arguing this is, uh, this is what ought to be done. In other words, much of the reason for the switch to firebombing in March 1945 had long been foreseen. And it was simply a product of enough air power, enough B-29s finally being assembled in the Marianas to make this work properly. And even before then, experimental firebombing raids had already been attempted. And Hay Haywood Hansen, the guy who that Gladwell argues abhorred this kind of practice, he had actually given the, the go-ahead to try these experimental firebombing raids. So yes, he was, he was probably more skeptical than LeMay about how effective they were going to be. Um, he was probably a bit more morally troubled than LeMay about the, about the, the process of firebombing. Um, it's, and it's probably beside the point because the real decision had not been made by either of them. The real decision had been made by people such as 
Committee of Operations analysts. It was bureaucrats back in Washington, ultimately, who made this decision. In other words, if we, if we imagine a counterfactual where Hayward Hansel is not replaced by Curtis LeMay, does the firebombing of Japan happen anyway? Uh, very probably it does. I mean, maybe, maybe Hansel is a little bit less enthusiastic about it. Maybe he, he doesn't introduce it quite so quickly. But it probably happens anyway. At the end of the day, Hansel was an army man and he was going to follow orders and do as he was told. I think in the first part of your answer, something you talk about is the effect of the theory that's being developed. And we can look to other air power theorists, Douay, Trenchard, in Europe, who are also looking at this problem of how to reduce the scale of warfare um, based on their experiences of the Western Front in the First World War. Trenchard goes down a different path to Douay. Trenchard looks to attack morale and to look key industrial um, components within the German war machine. Whereas Douay largely says attack with anything you have from the air, including gas, including incendiary bombs, continue to attack until you collapse society and force governments into a position where they have no choice but to either resign as governments or to surrender. Now, you mentioned the Manhattan bridges as potential targets for a sort of fictional attack on the US because of the strategic nature of the effect that this would have. What sort of targets were being looked at in terms of attacking Japan and attacking Germany? In terms of you know, target systems and things for precision bombing, well, as I say, they had thought a good deal about this between the wars. Uh, and if you were going to conduct precision bombing, if you were going to try and provide, create choke points uh, in an enemy economy, identify choke points that, you'd be able, that you might be able to knock out. Um, of course, the Americans had thought much about famously about ball bearings and the idea that if you knock out the enemy's capacity to be able to produce ball bearings, you make it extremely difficult for them to be able to manufacture engines and other kinds of uh, machinery that you need for aircraft production and things like that. Um, there were also theories about electric generation, um, about water supplies, as I mentioned before, in the theoretical attacks upon New York, um, oil targets, both the synthetic oil and natural oil production, railroad hubs and other transportation targets. And of course, some of these are targets which are pursued by the 8th and the 15th in Europe in 1944 and 1945, particularly oil and transportation. But again, it may be that uh, for sort of PR purposes, Maxwell Field would talk about precision bombing as being this kind of humanitarian thing to make war less off. In practice, it's not always clear that that actually would have been the effect. You know, cutting off supplies of fuel and food to civilians does not necessarily make their lives much more comfortable than it would be if you launched um, fire attacks uh, against their home. As a concept, this seems very similar to the naval blockades of Germany in the First World War and Japan in the Second World War looking to destroy society or to make life as difficult on the home front as possible through the reduction of uh, access to raw materials, foodstuffs, etc., etc. Um, did the ideas of precision bombing uh, in theory that were developed by the Air Corps Tactical School actually match the reality that they faced in war? Well, a, a lot of the uh, training and testing of the Northern Bombsite, and the Northern Bombsite is this remarkable bit of technology, this kind of analog computer that's developed. Uh, a, a huge amount of hullabaloo is made about its uh, 
both its complexity and also its secrecy. There are famous photographs of uh, bombardiers with the Northern bomb site walking around with the bomb site kind of chained in a box to the you know to, to their wrists and people walking around with fire with sidearms next to them because this was such a key technology. It was a remarkable piece of uh, equipment. It's mostly tested though in the southwestern United States. And one of the uh, characteristics of that part of the world is that uh, there isn't an awful lot of cloud there, um, which means that if you do want to try and hit a pickle barrel at 50,000 feet or whatever it might be, then uh, you've probably got a good deal more chance in Arizona than you might have, um, say, over Bremen or, uh, or Hamburg. So the, the problem, of course, is that, or, or for that matter, over Tokyo. The, pr the problem, of course, is that the, the Norden bomb site is limited ultimately by visual accuracy. Um, this is one of the reasons why, again, in, in Europe, they increasingly switched to radar, uh, air-to-ground radar-assisted bombing, uh, rather than relying on the Norden. And in the Pacific campaign, it's one of the reasons why ultimately precision bombing is abandoned, because they just can't see the targets properly. Uh, and, it's, and it seems to make more sense to try and aim at, at large urban areas rather than trying to hit anything in particular. To add to that, I, I think there was also a degree of naivety within the US Army Air Force around weather, but not just in terms of cloud cover, but the rain, the wind and the currents that were around at the altitude that they were flying. But also, I think, a degree of naivety over enemy action and the effects that this would have. Yes, certainly in uh, in Europe, of course. I mean, the theory had been that the box combat boxes that the... B-17s and the B-24s would fly in would be sufficient to thwart any, any interception by enemy fighters. The RAF had also thought this back in 1939 and had flown Wellingtons and Blenheims um, in formations, combat box formations, essentially, thinking that they would be able to break through a daylight interceptor force of uh, Messerschmitt 109s and 110s. And they are, of course, rudely and tragically disabused of this belief um, in some of the raids against Wilhelmshaven and yeah. places like that in, in late 1939. The Americans uh, assume that, the, that they will be able, you know, the B-17s, the B-24s are better armed than the early British planes had been. Uh, and I think there's a little bit of, well, that was them, but this is us uh, and we'll do it differently. We'll be better at it. The experience over Schweinfurt and Regensburg in the second half of 1943, I think, uh, makes it clear that it's not going to be nearly so easy to do that. And this is where I think the American Air Force strategy in Europe starts to switch to the idea of destroying the Luftwaffe before uh, they can continue to conduct large-scale raids. So the introduction, of course, of long-range fighter escorts, famously and successfully with the P-51, the Mustang means that you can actually draw the Luftwaffe into combat above Germany uh, and you've got planes, fighter planes with sufficient quality that to be able to take on um, the Messerschmitts and Focke-Wulfs and, and, and shoot them down. In some ways, in early 1944, the bombers are just bait meant to draw up the, the German interceptors in order to try and shoot them down. And uh, certainly by the time of D-Day, that's been extremely successful. Uh, that combined with attacks against the German aircraft industry sort of means that the Luftwaffe is essentially grounded. Now, in the Pacific, of course, there were also issues related to fighter and anti-aircraft defense. What the, the original reason why B-29s had been designed to fly at such high altitude was to try and avoid 
some of these problems. In the end, flying at such high altitude causes huge problems, not just because of visibility, but also because you, you, you start to encounter the jet stream, yeah. uh, which is particularly strong over Japan. Uh, this, had not, this was a meteorological um, phenomenon that hadn't really been properly understood before the mid-1940s because it simply wasn't possible to fly planes high enough to be able to, to encounter it. But once they do, when they, the B-29s experience this incredibly you know, fast buffeting wind, mm -hmm. makes it more or less impossible to stay in formation. Um, but by February 1945 anyway, the state of the Japanese air defenses is such that you know, flying at low altitude doesn't prove to be a, a, a hugely difficult problem. I think that the single biggest problem actually that the, the B-29 crews experience is navigational problems, just because they are flying such enormous distances. I mean, far, far bigger distances than anything in Europe and almost all of it over water, which means that you know, getting from Tinian to Tokyo and back again is quite a significant navigational challenge uh, in an age before G GPS and, and other kinds of aids. And I think there's been an underestimation of the challenges of naval navigation across the Pacific, where it's a barren, featureless area with nothing to guide you. Almost reminiscent of conditions in Germany and in the UK where blackouts were imposed. And so it became very difficult to navigate to a target and simply to know where on the earth that you were. If we could move on to look at the offensive conducted in Europe. How much are the U.S. Army Air Forces approaches influenced by the experience of Bomber Command in Europe prior to the U.S. joining around 1942? Is there a, a lessons learned or a knowledge transfer process so that the U.S. Army Air Force can understand the experiences of Bomber Command operating against Germany prior to 1942? Well, the RAF, of course, had also begun uh, thinking about oil and transportation as being the, the key systems, and they, you know, one of the reasons they give this up, uh, as I say, is just simply because it's just they just don't have the kind of air weapon that's available to hit them effectively uh, in 1940 or 1941. The Americans do still believe in this stuff. I mean, they, their initial concentration is against the is against the German aircraft industry, but certainly with when you get Spatz's entry into the theatre. Uh, in 1944, he is very strong on the idea of attacking the oil targets in particular. Um, I mean, this is—it's. I mean, it's partly a a story of disagreements between the British and the Americans, but it's also disagreements on the British side as well. Uh, there's by no means uniformity uh, in the RAF of opinion when it comes to air attacks, as we've already mentioned. Arthur Harris, you know, Harris does not come up with the theory of. Of area bombing. It had already been introduced anyway before he becomes Commander-in-Chief of Bomber Command, but he certainly does believe in it extremely strongly. Sir Charles Portal is never really a true believer in them in the same way that Harris is, and he is much more persuaded by the arguments of Spatz and others, and this is a, something of a conflict that then takes place between him and uh, Harris. You know, Harris does, does make some attacks against oil and transportation. When it comes to the final conclusion after the war about which, you know, what, what was the right kind of strategy to employ, did area bombing work? The, the Americans, of course, launched the U.S. Uh, Strategic Bombing Survey, and this is an enormous statistical effort. They go to Germany and interview thousands of people 
they invest very large amounts of resources in, in making an extremely detailed, methodical um, survey about what they think the effects of bombing were. There is a reason for this. This is partly because it, it's going to be used uh, in order to be able to justify the creation of an independent US Air Force. Uh, in 1947. So there is a kind of method here. This is not a neutral uh, inquiry. There are definite reasons for this. It probably isn't a huge surprise to discover that the US Strategic Bombing Survey concludes that American policy was, was by far the best one. Um, there is a British bombing survey, which takes place in parallel immediately after the war, but uh, the British being, uh, to put it, to put it crudely extremely broke in comparison with the Americans, don't have this nearly the same amount of resources to be able to spend on this survey as the, as the Americans. So the, the British bombing survey is by contrast a very uh, a slightly amateurish effort really. So these uh, in, in sort of first drafts of history don't look upon area bombing very, uh, very kindly. Um, historians since have kind of gone back and forth about this, uh, but Harris to the end of his days if you ever read his, his very good memoir, it's very well-written memoir, Bomber Offensive, he continues to robustly defend the policy and argues that the only reason that it didn't succeed in actually bringing the war to an end by itself was simply because he didn't receive the kind of resources that he needed until the end of 1944. Had he been given the planes in 1943 that he was demanding, uh, he argues that there wouldn't have been a D-Day, it would have been unnecessary to invade Europe and that and the war would have come to an end. Uh, an intriguing counterfactual that hasn't, certainly hasn't convinced everybody, but uh, he was always convinced. Earlier, we discussed about the fighters and the effect that the combined bomber offensive had on the German capacity to maintain the defence of the homeland, the defence of the eastern and the western fronts. And something that we can see uh, throughout the duration of the combined bomber offensive, but particularly into 1944 onwards, is this idea of fighter resources being withdrawn from the military fronts in the east and the west. How important was the bombing campaign to military operations, particularly as we get to the later stages of the Second World War? Well, one of the big arguments in favour of uh, that historians have now used in, in, in arguing for the success of the strategic bombing campaign over Europe is the way that it redistributed and redirected the economy of the Third Reich. So the Germans essentially give up on bomber aircraft production from about 1942 onwards. Uh, and the bombers that they do have that they continue in production tend to be bombers like the, the Heinkel HE-111 and the Junkers 88. Uh, which are by this point starting to become obsolete. These are these are medium bombers with uh, with only two engines, relatively uh, low range and payload, and so on. Um, there's no real ability uh, to to be able to you know construct four engine bombers of the kind of thing that the the Allies have. But most of their most of their aircraft production resources now have to go to fighter aircraft, and most of those fighter aircraft are going to be deployed to some extent in the Mediterranean, but mostly over the in the air defense uh, of Germany. There's also the production of anti-aircraft guns as well. I think it's sometimes underestimated just how many uh, anti-aircraft pieces the Germans begin to produce from 1942 and 1943 onwards. And again, the vast majority of these are going to be used in the air defense of Germany. So everything from these, the big, of course, the big famous 88 millimeter uh, heavy anti-aircraft gun all the, all the way down to the smaller caliber weapons. The Germans effectively have to cede 
air control uh, on the Eastern Front to the Soviet Union from 1943 onwards, because not because they're not producing aircraft, but because the aircraft that they are producing are entirely fighter aircraft, which are being used against the, the British and the, and, the, um, and the American bombers. So what, what is left for the Luftwaffe is small, medium bombers, or even a plane like the Junkers 87, the Stuka dive bomber, which was definitely showing its age by 1943, uh, and yet continues to have to be employed simply because the, the Germans don't have anything, any other alternative, but are not really able in any case to provide them with the kind of fighter escorts that they need. So the, the Soviets are able to essentially take over the, the skies. And this is, of course, a contributory factor in the success of the Kursk counteroffensive and then of the, the battles that start to roll back the German front in the, in the second half of 1943. To sum up the experiences then of the United States Army Air Force in terms of their experiences of the bombing campaigns against Germany and against Japan, what lessons do they learn that they then try to apply in future conflicts? Well, I've already said about the, the, the bombing of Germany and the belief that ultimately the oil and transportation target strategy was uh, successful. The Americans also do a strategic bombing survey of Japan, and they uh, come away from that very boosterish, if you like, about the firebombing raids. Uh, and this is reflected just to, just to finally return to the bomber mafia, to, to Gladwell's book. He takes, you know, largely uncritically, this view that the firebombing raids in 1945 were not just an important factor in bringing the war to an end against Japan. But actually, I think he argues that they are the single most decisive factor in bringing the war uh, against Japan to an end. Uh, this was the position that Curtis LeMay had taken. Uh, he also has writes a very robust memoir of his experiences and makes the, the same kind of argument. In fact, both men even downplay the effects of the atomic bombs. They argue that... Uh, both LeMay and then, and then following LeMay, Gladwell argue that the, the atomic bombs in and of themselves didn't play that big a role. It was really the firebombing of the cities. Uh, now, what are we to make of this? Well, it's certainly difficult to deny the amount of uh, human suffering that was caused by the firebombing raids, or and for that matter, the amount of physical destruction. It is certainly true that most of Japan's urban areas are laid waste, so much so that by the end of the war, 21st Bomber Command was actually running out of targets. I mean, they literally just didn't, there wasn't that much uh, urban real estate left in Japan to, to burn down. But did it make a huge difference to the Japanese decision to surrender? Um, I mean, one problem with this is that uh, it, it ignores an awful lot of other factors as well. There are, of course, the atomic bombs. Um, there is the decision by the Soviet Union to declare war on Japan on August the 8th, 1945, which is, is hugely important uh, for diplomatic purposes. It also ignores other American efforts. For instance, the US Navy's unrestricted submarine warfare campaign against uh, Japan, perhaps one of the most uh, relatively obscure but decisive campaigns of the whole of the Second World War, where they had largely eliminated the Japanese merchant fleet by the early part of 1945, making it impossible to import goods. Um, the U.S. Strategic Bombing Survey, when it looks at the, the effects of the attacks on Japan, it's actually a little vague 
about what the effects of these were other than just pure physical destruction. It is true, for instance, that military production in Japan goes down drastically in 1945, uh, at the same time that the firebombing raids are taking place. But the thing is, it had already been going down anyway. It had already been falling pretty precipitously throughout 1944 as well. And that probably had more to do with shortages of raw materials than anything else. Jap Japanese industry simply couldn't keep on going because it didn't have any oil. It didn't have any, of the, uh, it didn't have any bauxite. It didn't have any of these kind of necessary materials to, to be able to run factories or build planes and so on. And that had far more to do with the submarine campaign than it ever had to do with the, with the bombing. Um, the other thing as well is that as the firebombing raids continue in 1945, it's, it's arguable that their effect becomes actually much, much less noticeable. Um, they, yes, they destroy a lot of territory, but they don't kill nearly as many people. After the, the big March raid on Tokyo, uh, this, as I, I've already mentioned, is the most destructive air raid in history. But it catches the Japanese completely by surprise. They had not anticipated anything on this kind of scale or using these kind of tactics. But the Japanese civil defense responded to this. Once they understood that the Americans had switched tactics, they also switched their defensive methods. They were able to, for instance, to be able to be much more sophisticated in their firefighting methods than before. Um, and this starts to have an effect. So, for instance, uh, the city of Nagoya, which by 1945 has a population of about 600,000 people. This is attacked in four very major firebombing raids by LeMay's aircraft. The total civilian deaths from all of these raids put together is only 3,800 people, which is in stark contrast to the effects of the Tokyo raid in March. In other words, you were getting a sharply decreasing return on these raids as time went on, however spectacular they may have looked. It's not entirely clear that they were actually having that much, nearly as much effect. There is one sort of thing to notice about this, which is that, of course, the US Air Force wasn't just launching firebombing raids uh, against Japan. It was doing other things in the Pacific too. And some of the things, other things it was doing were arguably more effective than the firebombing raids, but nobody wanted to talk about them because they were not as glamorous. They, were, they did not produce the same kind of publicity. So for instance, there is a campaign to drop naval mines, maritime mines in Japanese harbors starting in late March, 1945. Now, Curtis LeMay has to be dragged, kicking and screaming to do this. He hates uh, diverting his, his B-29s to, to drop mines in Japanese harbors because he regards this as being a distraction from the main effort. But the fact is that these were hugely effective, these, these attacks on harbors. Um, they're crucial to cutting off the remaining supplies of raw materials and food. But nobody wants to talk about them after 1945 because, again, they're not glamorous, they don't catch headlines, uh, and they're not seen as being particularly useful for the argument to create an independent US Air Force, which is what so much of the early history is actually about. So ironically, LeMay chooses not to get some of the credit that his airmen probably deserve uh, because he wants to think about other things instead. Alan, it's been an absolute pleasure to discuss with you the theories of the Air Corps Tactical School in the 1930s and perhaps how the theories that they developed at that point didn't quite match the realities of the situations they faced 
in the 1940s in the Second World War against Germany and Japan when they conducted their bombing offensives. Thank you very much for your time. Oh, you're very welcome. I think we can all agree that that was a superbly interesting summary of US bombing approaches during the Second World War. Thanks to Alan for coming on the show, and he's promised to come back, so we'll have to make sure we arrange something in the future. He's also promised us that there's a sequel to Britain at Bay in the works, and it's coming soon, so do definitely keep your eyes peeled for that. Next up on this show, however, we have Dr Cassandra Steer talking all about the legal constraints and ramifications of operating in and from space, which provides a great insight into the potential of space power. See you then. <laughs>